Welcome to The Mental Cast, powered by Soul Performance Academy. The Mental Cast is a podcast focused on the topics and people helping drive us forward in leadership, learning, and our personal journeys. Just a reminder, you can send in your questions using the hashtag AskDanMickle, A-S-K-D-A-N-M-I-C-K-L-E, or sending an email to info at danmickle.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Mental Cast. Here is the host of The Mental Cast, Dan Mickle. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Mental Cast. I'm your host, Dan Mickle, and today we have a special guest. We have Kyle Wagner. Um, a slew resume. I'll let him go through the resume and pick out his highlights. But um, I think this is going to be a great talk about development and how we how we develop our players and our team. So, uh, Kyle, if you want to give a quick background of your history as a, a player and then into the coaching world. Yeah. So, um, the the sport of interest is baseball. I've uh, I've played multiple sports in high school, but ultimately baseball was the sport that uh, that I grew attached to and developed a love for. Um, I had success in high school. I went to, to college at Wake Forest, played one year professionally. But um, undoubtedly, I, I think I've become a, a more accomplished coach, mostly because I, I, I eventually couldn't play the game at a high enough level that, that I wanted to. Uh, I, just, I just didn't hit enough. And then I guess born out of that frustration was, uh, was the impetus of green light hitting, which essentially was a model where I, I trained uh, baseball players of all ages, but I think there was a deficiency at the youth level, how to grow uh, athletes, uh, not just grow their skills, but, but continue to grow the love of the sport. I think sometimes we err in, in uh, constant, constantly focusing on improving them that, uh, that we stop and realize that it is in fact a game they're playing and we, and we need to give them uh, that motivation to, to, to keep enjoying the sport that they picked. So uh, that, that, that was green light hitting. And um, there's a whole bunch of different ways we can go with that. But that's probably my resume uh, in, a, in a nutshell. All right, well, let's start with that. And, and the simple question is, which came first? Did, did you start the training and it morphed into green light? Or did you have that moment where you're like, this is what's missing and you based everything around that to create? So I, I was, um, I, I stopped playing in 1996 and uh, the, the, the baseball training world isn't what it is now. Uh, you know, there, there were some well-respected coaches, but I was certainly looking for answers as I finished up my career. And I had a son uh, in 2001. Uh, by 2004, I realized he was going to be a pretty good athlete. And I, um, you know, someone, or I, I read something somewhere that said, you know, I've always been trying to make a dent in the universe. And I guess that's sort of what I, I wanted to do is I didn't, I hadn't really come to any consensus yet on how to train my son. So I tried to discover what, uh, what I wanted to do and the path I wanted to take. And then by uh, 2009, Go Wags opened up. That was our baseball training facility. Uh, a whole bunch of trial and error. By 2012, I thought I hit on some ideas that others weren't talking about. And then uh, by 2012, uh, eventually the, the book, Greenlight Hitting, got, got published. And, and we started to have a whole bunch of teams and a whole bunch of success. And people sort of liked what I had to say. So that's what happened there. What's, um, without giving away trade secrets, what, no, what's, what's, what's the concept of Greenlight Hitting for someone that's not familiar with it? Um. Our, our tendency as coaches is to be result oriented. The, we get validation when we beat the other team. We get validation when our guys uh, just simply outperform the other guy. And then before we know it, we're in a rabbit hole of outcomes and our kids hear those outcomes. They, they, the outcomes get emphasized. And you can be process driven as much as you want, but if your actions don't back up what you believe, all of a sudden, your kids start to internalize outcomes are more important than, than, than the process. So green light hitting was a, was a process driven model. It recognized what was needed to be successful. 
And then um, you had to, and this is really the separator, you had to applaud the right process even when it produced the wrong results or or the, the desired results, I should say. And, and the most obvious with respect to, to hitting is a swing and a miss. A swing and a miss uh, often gets those, uh, those coaching cues of keep your eye on the ball. And, and there's always these, these ways we want to correct our athletes when baseball is hard and, and sometimes you do everything right and you just swing and miss. And, and as long as you know, you as a coach saw what you wanted out of your athlete. That deserves praise just as much as uh, is a good process and a, and a double off the fence. So I think that's what separated us is that our kids didn't get conflicting messages even when they failed. The, the, the process was emphasized. Uh, and, and that's not easy. But, but once you start identifying the ways that you fall victim to it, you can start self-correcting. Did you find, and, and obviously there's been a ton of press with, with the Redland Little League team and, and the success that they had, um, and we could go down that rabbit hole probably for, for hours. Yeah. But do you feel like, were they the test lab? Like, do you feel like you were fine-tuning it, or do you feel like they were one of the teams that just really grasped the concept? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, were you, still, were you still tweaking it with them? I mean, there'll, there'll always be some tweaking, sure. obviously, but – or do you feel that that was like one of the teams that just really grasped it? I mean, I, I don't know what the stats are. I'm not, I watched every game. I'm not a big yeah. baseball guy to understand all the numbers, but I, I'm pretty sure like what they did was pretty unprecedented, like scoring wise, right. In the whole run up to, yeah. to the world championship and all that. So like, I, I feel like that's kind of a cause and effect, right? Yeah. No, that's a great question. Your question essentially is, you know, uh, on, on what end did they did they take part? Did they participate in in green light hitting? And and they definitely were the beneficiary of some trial and error out in front of them. Um, I think they saw enough success with teams a year, two years, three years before them. Uh, they they enjoyed the process enough that they kept showing back up in the cages. Their dads uh, embraced the process, uh, and and I guess that's really what 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 happened i i guess you know the the folks closest to me the people nearest my age my friends my brother and and those those folks they really embraced this model and so the kids never heard conflicting messages regardless of who they played for it, it was always you know not only is kyle wagner saying this but so is brett wagner so is tom pfeiffer so is jk Coleman'sberger. it became this this um, this snowball effect where you know you had every adult in your life saying the same thing and that's awfully validating and and it's it's awfully empowering and and uh, by the time 2015 rolled around you know regardless if if the message was appropriate like it was something they all believed in and and you know thankfully the results say that it was appropriate so I think that's that's what you see. Do you think you brought up a great point about everyone around you, you know, your brother and coach Pfeiffer and, you know, I obviously going to Redland when, when you guys played and you won the state championship in 90, you guys obviously understand the game. What, was it hard for you guys or did, was there buy-in from everyone? Did everyone kind of like, you know, this makes sense. And then is it easy to sell to other people or did other people just gravitate? Hey, this is working or, or you know, it, yeah. do you have to push it on the rest of the coaching staff to make sure, or was pretty much everyone on board? Uh, I think I earned a little bit of trust. I think uh, they gave me the benefit of the doubt that, hey, um, Kyle's had success. He's coached at, at enough levels where uh, we're, we're going to follow his message. But I also think that, you know, having, having kids changes things. Like kids trumps your allegiance sometimes to your friends. And they, they trusted me. They believed in me. But I think more importantly, when they started to have kids – uh, show up at the facility, be around me, go to a practice. Their kids would get back in the car and they would just basically say, this is a lot of fun. I want to keep doing this. And uh, I, I, I use the phrase, pain is the greatest teacher. And, you know, when, when moms and dads uh, see their kids in pain and then they, they identify, and when I say pain, I mean physical, emotional, psychological, like all that stuff. 
when you can find someone that can remove that and to bring order and uh, some comfort into your home, that's a really powerful message. And, you know, baseball is a, is a sport of failure. And I think ultimately what, what uh, galvanized the group towards green light hitting and my message was their kids, you know, they, they, when, when you're process oriented, your kids want to keep showing back up. There, there's less tears, there's less frustration. There's less anxiety in the car ride home. It was just, hey, we're going to get back at this thing tomorrow. We're going to stay the course. And, and you know, they, they enjoyed practice. They enjoyed the games. And that's, that's, that was really how it evolved. How do you, from a development, you know, one of the, one of the key things is, is hearing all the coaches on the same page or the kids coming up through the programs, you know, T-ball the whole way up. Um, and having the same messaging for development. How do you combat the, I won't say recent, because I think it's been happening for a while, but the whole someone's unhappy, so they start their own club or they start their own team, and kids are now bouncing, you know, in, in the volleyball world. It's not uncommon by the time a kid's a senior that they've played for eight different programs since they were, you know, in sixth grade. How do we combat that? Because I would think, and I personally think that that hurts the development, right? Because you start the process when they're young and then they're going to someone else. So how do you combat that? Or what's your message to parents or players about that as a developmental aspect? So um, in, I, I wrote a book called uh, how the river cats won. And, and in that book, I make the comment um, teams seek change, but, but people seek stability. And so what, what that speaks to your question is that every team uh, has to evolve because we, we need to get better. The competition is going to improve. I, I, we, can't, we can't remain who we are as a 14-year-old club because when we're 17 and 18, the competition is, is harder. So as a coach, you're constantly – that's my dog. I'm going to have to that's reload. Right. <laughs> as a coach, you, you have to always be seeking change. You, you have to constantly be looking for, for people to help improve your team and – because your best players deserve that. Your best players need to be challenged. You, you, you have to always be on the lookout for these folks that can make you better so collectively you can get better. That, that puts the individual player in a bind because individual players, they, they need to play and, and they, they want stability. They want to say, this is where I fit. This is my team and this is where I fit. And uh, the, the, the truthful message is that everyone, I mean, you know, you need to be truthful. Like you're on a team, but, but all of us aren't created equal, which means if, if you feel like you're number 10, 11, or 12, I don't know how many you carry on a volleyball team, but if, if you feel like you're number 10, 11, or 12, you, you have a choice. And that choice is you have to improve. And that message needs to be shared at home by mom and dad also. Or you're going to get replaced probably at some point. Like that is the, that is the brutal honesty of sport is that you, you have to constantly improve to keep getting these opportunities. And, you know, as a, as a baseball coach, I, I wanted to give my guys great opportunities when they were 15, 16, 17, and 18. And that meant that I had to be on the lookout for, for new players and better players and constantly trying to out-recruit the current players on my team but you know that that my my message was honest to the ones on my team hey get better or the the brutal nature of sport is going to dictate what's going to happen here do you feel um i i remember in the book you talked about you had a player leave you know there was that discussion i believe you know we feel we need to go somewhere else to kind of grow and and all that um it, it do you think from a developmental standpoint that that happens for the better more often? Or do you think that you're seeing it more where parents are just unhappy, even though you're being honest? You know, I had a situation years ago at the 17s level where I, I brought in a person that was third in their position. I was very honest with them and I, I gave them everything that I was upfront about and they still ended up leaving and weren't happy. Do, do you feel that that is the message being lost that people are always looking? I'd rather be the, the starter on a lower team than be, you know, second or third on a better team. Yeah. And that's the struggle. I mean, you can't please everyone, you know, I mean, people, people have to decide many times if, if the opportunity to go play with someone else 
trumps uh, the opportunity that you're giving them. And, you know, th there's no right answer there. But, but I would say this, that if, if they don't value your practices, if they don't see opportunities for growth and development prior to your competitions, it might be in the best interest for them to leave. But that, that's really what, what brought people to our organization and, and it, what really attracted the parents to me and what uh, oftentimes was the reason why the kids and the parents themselves were willing to sacrifice because they knew, hey, like the, the reason, the, the real true value of our dollar is the practices that, that, that they put us through. And yes, we would like more at-bats. And yes, we would like more opportunities. And yes, we would like more mound time. But the truth of the matter is, if we leave his organization, I don't think we're going to get better instruction. So they would often sacrifice game at-bats or mound time or defensive innings because they thought that the instruction was better than other places. So I think, you know, uh, I, I believe uh, there's a book called the, the, the Speed of Trust or, or it's the Code of Trust, I forget, but they talk about character and competence. And I really like that is, you know, you, you, need, to be, you need to be competent in what you do, but, and you need to have good character. And, you, and it sounds like as long as you're being honest with them, that, that, that checks off the character box. And then, you know, do your part to, to be smarter than every other coach and give all your players what they deserve. And sometimes when you do that, when you grow yourself, your, your kids aren't running for better homes elsewhere. So from a, an organization like, let's say, Go Wags, from top to bottom, do you guys um, – is it a top to bottom? Like, does everyone get on the same page and say, okay, when they come in as T-ball or 12s, and by the time they leave it, you know, whatever your top level is, 17s, 18s, or whatever yeah. – um, is there a path? Like, is, is this how we want to develop the player over the whole time? Or is it more about this is the moment and this is what we're doing for this team for this year? Yeah, I think, you know, our model was, was a little different. We believed in uh, – we empowered each coach to, to organize their team how, how they saw fit. And it wasn't the, the greatest business model. Other uh, organizations would hold mass tryouts and – and they would open themselves up to uh, the, the best players that given year. So a little bit of a fear-based culture, I think, in that model. What, what we did is we empowered the coach. And, uh, you know, he, he, could, he could mold his team however they saw fit. And, um, for instance, the, the, the Go Wags Patriots, that team that ultimately uh, had great success in 2015, that group was willing to tolerate some failures – as eights, nines, tens, and elevens to get what they wanted at, at 12. So, you know, in their mind, they had this, this vision at the end that they were shooting for. And not, not, every, not every team is like that. Some, some teams, uh, they, they, they want to be successful in, in each and every year, and they're willing to part with certain players to do that. So I think um, the, the, the answer is from an organizational standpoint, we allowed the coach to dictate policy with how he wanted to grow that particular age group. Uh, very seldom did we have mass tryouts. If they wanted three or four players, we would conduct tryouts to bring them in and take a look. Uh, if they wanted one player, sometimes we did that by phone call, just identify a couple guys who you might want and they would do it by phone call. So, um, our, our model with respect to how we, we grew each team was, I think they, they agreed with my general philosophy uh, with how to develop players, but then I allowed the coach uh, autonomy in, in how he wanted to implement that throughout his teams. So switching caps a little bit on, on all of that, did you start to transform what you were doing in the classroom based on what was going on in the field? Like, like you have some amazing posts that I wish I would have heard, you know, educationally growing up. Like, yeah. um, for me, the big one is I, for years, always had test anxiety. You know, I would do everything right. I feel like I'd have everything. And then we get to the test and it would crush me. Yeah. And I would feel like a complete failure, even though I did everything I was asked. Um, 
does one feed the other? Are they kind of blending in the other? Is there a shift happening in the educational world? I mean, obviously when, when Dweck kind of went mainstream with the growth mindset and, right. and people quick read it and a lot of people, in my opinion, a lot of people are applying it a little bit incorrectly in the sense that they're praising everything, you know, kind of right. missing the whole point. But I think like some of the stuff that you have been posting and talking about not related to sports, obviously have an effect on sports. Are they kind of driving each other? Are you, are you kind of bringing the game into the classroom and the classroom into the game? You know, what, well, what's, how's that well, shift work? I, I, yeah. And I'm not sure when it happened. I, I just started, you know, I, I, uh, I sold go wags in 20, uh, 2016, I want to say, um, and, you know, I just couldn't serve that many masters. So I, I decided to, you know, make sure I was the best dad possible for, for, for my son and, and my daughter. And, and then I started to think, you know, why aren't the people that show up in, inside our buildings as passionate as the people that show up between the lines? And, and there were a lot of things and a lot of reasons why. Uh, certainly, um, one of my beliefs is attendance doesn't imply consent. And, and you know, when you, when you sign up for a team, you're, you're giving yourself willfully. You're saying, this is who I want to play for. This is the coach I want to play for. This is the sport I've chosen. So the people that were in my presence weren't really there by, by choice. They were there by obligation. So first and foremost, I had to, I had to convince them that, that uh, I was someone that uh, of value, someone they, that, that I could, that could influence them. And then the other thing that, that bothered me was uh, I had so much control in that classroom and, and I could dictate policy however I saw fit. And you know, I, the, I, I would set these, these random moments in time and call these days important. Like on Tuesday, we have a test day and, and that's a really important day to know stuff. And, and then Thursday, we would just forget about it. And, you know, I guess I was like, well, what makes Tuesday more important than Thursday? Like, what, what, why, if it's important to know tomorrow, it's important to know two weeks from now. So the beauty of sports is like everything that you're told by a coach, this is important it is important and it shows up later and you're going to get evaluated on it. Like you're not, you don't, you don't tell a student or an athlete, Hey, you need to know this. And it's really important that you know this by next Friday. No, you tell them you need to know this. And this is a skill worth having because it's going to benefit you down the road, right? For me, for every subsequent coach, for everyone. But we set up these, these artificial finish lines and, and then we prevent, we prevent growth and progress in the name of responsibility and, and obligation. And, and I was just, I was just perplexed by that. I, I said, we, th there's a better way we have to do better. And, and um, I think it, I think it really comes down to the pace at which school moves. Uh, we, we get put under a lot of pressure as teachers to conform to the pace when in sports, we know that, you know, we, we get them for a small moment in time, but ultimately they're going to get judged outside of, of my, my purview, I guess. Yeah, I, that makes sense. And the, the deadline thing is, is spot on. I, I think as soon as we set that deadline, everyone starts working for that deadline. And then the minute's gone, they're so relaxed, it's out the brain and, and completely forgotten. Yeah, I mean, you and I both know if, if uh, you know, if we had a, a baseball player or a volleyball player, and you said, hey, this is you need to know this on Tuesday because we have a game and you're going to get judged on it. But then Wednesday they showed up and they're like, well, I don't have that skill anymore. You would be like, what are you talking about? You, don't have skill. <laughs> you had it, you had it yesterday. Yeah. But you, you, the test was, and that's what that, you know, truthfully in, in education, every day should be a test day. Like every day should be a test day. It's that important, right? Like the stuff we're, we we're asking you to know is important. It's, it's, it's that important. So if it's that important, Stop marking random days as the most important day. Treat them all as important. And that, that's, I guess, my point. They're all important, right? And in, and in sports, you know, us, us coaches, we value every rep. You know, if, if we're watching someone on the volleyball court and they give us less than their best effort, that's unacceptable. And we, and we ask them, why? why? Why are you not giving me your best effort? Because every rep counts. But in, in, in academics, we prioritize test day as the most important day and these other days get diminished. And, you know, in, instead of preparing someone for test day, how about we, we recognize the value of every day? I guess that's what I'm getting at. 
what's what's the what's the model for that both in in sport and in in education um you, you know one of the big chunks coming out from science is whether we do block random whole part what are you seeing is there a correlation to both like i'm in the camp of do it whole and let's break it down if we have to or you know try and get it as complete of an action and and let's try this homeschooling obviously that everyone's kind of going through now yeah. and that's kind of what i'm doing with my kids is hey let's let's not try and break it down so much because you're getting bogged down by the breakdown let's do it and see what you got like what's your philosophy on that on the on both on in the classroom and on the field are you a, a whole and then break it down or is it yeah. you know part by part uh so i i i did a um I did a, a video on YouTube the other day I called the imagination game. And I sort of break down how I see things. Uh, and, and in the book, I talk about the love growth cycle. And that's really my framework for this is that each of us needs time to grow and each of us needs time to rest. And uh, so often when, when we fracture learning up into these little silos or buckets, everyone wants to do grow, 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 grow. And then no one has time to rest and, 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 revitalize their energy for whatever it is they do. So, you know, when you ask me that question, what's my model, you know, when, when it's time to grow, there's two ways I think you can proceed. That deliberate practice is the research by Anders Ericsson. It's, it's, it's get really focused on what you want to do, be deliberate, be precise, demand perfect. You know, but, but then the other side is, is, is like you said, the block practice, the, the retrieval practice. They call that the train ugly, right? Is, yep. is throw the kitchen sink at them, let them fail, and let them, let them learn to, to uh, interpret how they fail, right? So when, you, when you're participating in growth, there's the train ugly piece and there's the deliberate practice piece. And both are equally important. And, you know, if, if you're engaging in the training ugly piece, you, you, there's not a whole lot of coaching there. That's more like let them figure this out on their own. They're, they're, they're going to fail and they're going to fail beautifully. You know, but when you're deliberate practice, that's when you're like, no, we're not going to accept failure today. Today it's all about perfect, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that you are perfect. And both those, both those two models have value. But the other one is just as important. It's that time for play it's that time for less scrutiny it's that time for why did i love this sport again oh right it's a game and and can i can i goof off yeah you are allowed to goof off like you you can have that time where you can reinvest in just the nature of game and and we did that with uh with horse with our horse you know the basketball version of horse yep. we, we did it with baseball and, and i think it's true in the classroom too i think i think you know, we've become such a precision driven data world that we obsess over how to grow our kids and no one wants to be the person to say, hey, when do they sleep? When, when do they, when do they uh, back off? When do they get this piece of the puzzle? And, and uh, that, that's, you know, I, I embrace that too. I, I remember going to practice one day and literally the best compliment I ever got was from my son. He asked me, what are we doing at practice? And I said, well, I got some ideas. And he said, well, Whatever we do, I know we're going to have fun. That you always, we always have fun at your practice. So, you know, I tell people not—I don't mean dodgeball fun either. I mean really productive fun where people can't wait to get back. Yeah. So, I, I want to lead into a, a sample practice with you because you bring up the horse and and the memory I have of baseball education. Now, I never played little league. Um, growing up, but I remember those commercials on TV all the time. I forget whose it was, you know, the, the video series. And it was literally a picture of, of like seven, seven kids doing hitting off of a tee. Yeah. And they were breaking down by timing. Okay, the hip turn, the shoulder, and the follow through. And it was just robotic and robotic yep. and robotic. But that to me would be horrible. Like I would hate getting in the car going to that. You yes, know what I mean? You got it. So, so our big push has been small games. You know, obviously yeah. we play six on six, but a lot of my practices are 30 minutes of two versus two, one bounce, you know, throw the rules out the window, you know, the same movements, the same concepts, but we're taking the confines of the rules out. How do you do that in baseball? Like, like, because yeah. it's such more of an organized you know what I mean? Like, how, how do you make it small game fun, but still learning the skills in that sense? So the, the, I'm, I'm going to 
take this two directions. The first thing I think we coaches need to do a better job is consulting people outside our sport, okay? So I love listening to volleyball coaches and football coaches and golf coaches because they bring great perspective. And one of the things that, that I constantly tell baseball people is, look, you've fallen in love with your sport, but if you don't realize that baseball is a boring sport, you're going you're gonna to miss it all, right? So if, if, you, if you don't try to hook these kids that, that are playing a boring sport, a sport with, little, little, with a whole lot of downtime and little action, you're going to lose them to volleyball. You're going to lose them to lacrosse or football. So, you know, when you ask me, how do I conduct my practices? Uh, I, I wanted to make sure that the first thing I did every practice was exciting. And I gave them a reason to show up. And I tell people, look, I'm not stretching at the youth level. They don't stretch for recess. So they're not stretching for my practice We're they're showing up. They're going to get out of the car. They're going to put their spikes on. We're going to have fun. Uh, so the first thing I did was always high energy, lots of fun, uh, make them excited to, 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 to not be late. And then uh, whatever we did, like uh, maybe everyone likes to catch pop-ups. So I would often hit pop-ups right away. And, and then they'd come in and they get a drink. And then when they're sitting get down getting a drink, I give them a five, six, seven minute little discussion about how that went and what we're going to do. But there's a reason for them to be sitting because they're tired and they had fun. And then what we do is we would often go out and we would do some teaching component. Like you said, break it, break it up, um, make, make it very specific. Hey guys, we're going to do runner at third base, one out batting practice, really specific runner at third base, one out batting practice. Everyone likes to hit, but we're going to attach a runner at third base, one out. So situationally now they got to engage their brain and what's the purpose. Uh, so then that, that was more of a, of a deliberate practice approach. Uh, and then uh, maybe we shifted to batting practice, runner at second base, two outs. And then we're doing that. And then I would always reserve the right. Uh, if, if I didn't like what I saw, I could flip the script. I, I think it's important that coaches have the ability to, to react to what they see. And, and this is true in the classroom too. You know, I, I, I have one of my beliefs is planning is greater than the plan. So uh, have so many so many things that you could do to adapt to what you see that you can get the most out of your time and and so for instance if if we were doing runner at third base one out batting practice and then we shifted to runner at second two out batting practice and I didn't like what I was seeing with their base running immediately I could switch and do 15 minutes base running because we don't know that right right but I reserve that 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 adaptability that time I'm you know, I'm, I wasn't, I didn't really lock in with this is what we have to do minute by minute by minute because I wanted to, to react to what I was seeing. But then uh, everyone has to hit. Like I really think with baseball, that's one of the fun things. Everyone likes to hit. So I would always reserve time to make sure that we hit. And I had a whole bunch of different ways that we did that. And then the other piece is I always made sure we got out of there on time. It, you know, I, I, I was really sensitive to the parents to the, to the siblings, uh, making sure that if, you know, practice was two hours that we didn't go two hours and 20 minutes. So that was the other piece, you know, be, be, be mindful of when practice should end because you want them excited about coming back. Yeah. So the two big key points that you started and ended with were, was about the excitement and, you know, the, the perception of baseball being boring um, from a parent aspect my daughter played t-ball at Redland in 2015. So while you guys were going through the whole thing, we were part of it, you know, from the t-ball level, engaged everything. This past year, my son played t-ball for a different organization, and it was completely the opposite. Um, you know, that, that first practice in April or whenever it was, and it's still ice cold out, um, and they just kind of lined the whole team up, and they all took turns hitting. But there's 16 kids. So in that that 90 minutes that they were there, my son literally touched a baseball three times total, um, sat in the grass the rest of the time or sat on the bench the rest of the time. And I think that's part of what's being lost from a lot of the groups is how do we mix that up? You know, and, and I don't know what the answer is in baseball. Is it small groups here doing, you know, I always thought, well, if we're playing t-ball, why can't we have multiple tees out there and kids hitting off of multiple tees? It's not like they're jacking them all into the outfield at this yeah. age group, but that just never seemed to cross anyone's mind. Is, is that just a lack of 
education? Is it because we're just pulling coaches? Hey, I want to form this team. So what mom and dad can coach? Yeah. I mean, it, are we suffering the development? It, would it be better, I guess, to not have that team at all? Or are, so, are we hurting them by having the team? Yeah. Some, sometimes we get um, – we, we allow structure to define how we think. And, you know, if you were in the summertime and you were just playing baseball with your buddies, you would, you would play baseball. You would, you would get, you know, seven per side, six per side, whatever that is, and you would play baseball. And, and by playing baseball, you would have fun. I mean, and if you didn't have fun, well, baseball wasn't for you. But if you, if you had fun, there was – a possibility that, hey, I might like this sport and I should probably get better at this sport. But the minute that we say, hey, this is your team and this is your time to practice, now all of a sudden we, we structure things uh, based upon that hour and a half time and, and this, this whole idea of we got to grow them, we got to get better, we got to know, I got to know who fits where, right? Like, so it becomes a coach-driven model and, you know, I'm telling everyone that, that, that I speak in front of is one of the best things that we as coaches can do is embrace what I call beginner's mindset is, is, is desperately try to put yourself in the position of the kid and what does he want to do? And, and uh, when we were at go wags, we had, uh, we would separate our athletes into three groups. We called them sampling specialized and invested and T-ball are sampling. Okay. Samplers. Then what that means is they're just sampling the sport. So stop obsessing over, how much they get better. Your sole purpose is to make sure they come back. That's it. That's, you know, keep, keep passing the torch. Those are the little people. Don't, don't, don't be the person that makes them pick football or basketball or lacrosse, make them pick your sport. And then once they get to a certain age, then they're like, Hey, I'm pretty good at this sport. And now it becomes more imperative that we teach them the skills to get better because we don't want them to stop playing because they're not good enough either. So the specialized kids, those were the kids that got to keep showing them the love of the game, but now we do have to really impress upon them how they have to get better. And those are, that's where the coaching clinics come in handy and, and, and structured practice. And this is what it looks like. But I just fear that so often, you know, the, uh, I, I, the calculus level teacher starts teaching second graders calculus and you're like, yeah, but wait, they don't even like math yet. Why would you think this message is applicable to them? So we need to do a better job of identifying the audience and, and boy, oh boy, if, if with respect to baseball, it is that T-ball crowd that I desperately thinks needs to know, Hey, stop obsessing over getting them better and, and learn how to make them enjoy the time with you. Yeah. I guess, how do we get that message across? You know, last year I did, um, a, a talk at it's called the Pacific Northwest coaches clinic. And it's a, one of those, you know, huge multi-sport everyone's that, you know, takes over every room at the Hilton. And yeah. Um, I only had to speak twice, but I was there for the whole week. So I got to sit in and I made a purpose to go out of my comfort zone. And I went and watched a bunch of football, basketball, baseball, every other sport that I don't know about and went and sat in their seminars to learn how they were doing it. Yeah. Um, I did the same with Glazer in Atlantic city two years ago. And it seemed like everyone had that message, like, but it just doesn't seem like I hear it all the time in these seminars, but I don't see it happening at the local fields and the local courts and the local gyms. Is it people don't feel we don't have the time to train these people. They don't want to train these people. Like how do we get it from the top people are saying, this is what we need to do, but no one's listening when it comes out to putting it in there. Like, like how do we get that to them? Yeah, I, I think there's, I think there's a little uh, fear factor, a little imposter syndrome with coaches and I think coaches feel obligated to do what it is a coach is supposed to do, right? Coaches are supposed to get their players better. And well, I'd hate for, I'd hate for all these parents to, to be watching me and, and, and then, you know, judging me on how it is I spend my time. You know, what, what I'm always interested in is, you know, identify certain coaches that have, have developed their sport to such a level that they are so comfortable in who they are as a coach. And, you know, Cale Sanderson at Penn State Wrestling, amazing model, and, and he's constantly trying to infuse fun into his practices. Pete Carroll, another guy, you know, that, that's true to himself. And I'm not saying you have to be a fun-loving coach. I mean, Bill Belichick obviously doesn't pass that test, but <laughs> right. people, people love playing for him, I'm, I'm guessing. So, you know, you got to be authentic to yourself. And, 
you know, I, I trust me and I know that my message, um, people like my message. They like playing for me and, and I'm comfortable. And I don't, you know, I know that moms and dads showing up on the sidelines, I'm not really uh, hypersensitive to how they think I run a practice because truthfully, I'm comfortable in how I run a practice. And I think that's, that's, that's one of the big obstacles to get over is to say, hey, look, we coaches at these clinics, we're giving you a whole bunch of information that's worthwhile, okay? But, but you have to also know that, you know, be true to yourself and, and know, know who you are. And, and you, first and foremost, you serve these kids. You don't serve their parents. And, and when those kids want games, give them games, right? You, you know, and, and tell mom and dad, this is why games are important. Games are important because they need to love this sport. I, I, and, and I know mom and dad sometimes get obsessed with, you got to make my kid better. We, he's got to get better. Everyone else is getting better. You know, the, the world demands greatness. And, and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yes, it does. And he'll be great in time. But today, for these 20 minutes, we're going to play horse. And he's going to have fun. He's going to thank me for it. And, and sometimes that imposter syndrome, that fear factor where everyone's so obsessed with doing their job well, it sort of conspires against serving the best interest of the kid. All right. So as we wrap up, I got two final questions for you. Um, you, you posted, and, and we talked about this before we started recording, but you posted about two years ago, the, the situation of, you know, you have a player who's the best player on your team or one of the top players on your team, but has conflicts, whether it's educational, outside interest or whatever, and can't make everything. I think the example you did was, you know, your best player can't make batting practice, you know, one of the times a week. And how do you hold the rest of the team responsible, but let him miss it? But he's such a big part of it. Like you need him. What are your thoughts on, on how do we cater that? Like, um, you know, equal equals not always equal right like yeah. it, it's sometimes we have to balance what someone else brings and how we treat them so how do you combat that or, or what's your philosophy on that well first of all I, I think if you have eight nine ten eleven year olds I think I think there's some consistency there I, the last thing I'd want a nine ten eleven or twelve year old athlete to think is that he deserves special privileges uh, you know at that age at, at that age there's a right way to act uh, and, and me as a coach, I'm going to model that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask all my players in uniform. I mean, that's why they call it a uniform is so there's consistency in nature. So I'm going to ask that of you. And then, but, you know, they just put the, uh, the last dance on with the Chicago Bulls. And, and there's a perfect example, Dennis Rodman and, and Phil Jackson. And eventually kids become adults and, uh, and uh, adults, they're, they're different, they're a different animal. And, and, you know, the, the critical component is when do kids become adults? Do they become, you know, is it when testosterone starts filling through them? And, and you know, and, and that is this really delicate balance because young people generally will conform and they'll do what you tell them to do. But it's that mindset of, hey, wait, I'm my own guy and I can do what I want to do. And then how as a coach do we handle that I'm my own guy with the consistency of a team? And the, the only thing I can say is, you need to create a culture that can handle whatever message you want to, you want to tolerate. And Phil Jackson obviously was such an incredible coach that he created a culture where those Chicago bulls were forgiving of Dennis Rodman, or they were forgiving of Scottie Pippen or forgiving of Michael Jordan, however that played out. And they ultimately knew that we're, we're in this to win a championship and that's a really big deal. And we're going to tolerate Rodman for Rodman's, uniqueness his idiosyncrasies and at the end of the day he's going to show up and he's going to give us his best effort and and phil jackson obviously created that climate now if you're not phil jackson and you're not comfortable with that well then you probably can't do that as a coach you probably need to be uh mr consistent and 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 everyone toes the line and everyone does what everyone is supposed to do but you know that that's another character and competence thing is that you know, if you're, if you're really good at your job and you're really a good coach and you can really create a culture where, where everyone recognizes everyone's own strengths and, and people aren't always so judgmental of, of, of things where, 
you know, hey, he's just being nice to him because that's what he's entitled to be, right? He, he wants to give him this. And, and if you can create that culture, I think a lot of times the players on the team aren't always like, well, that's not fair. He doesn't do that for me. I think what, what happens is they realize, hey, you know what? He's extending some grace to, to Rodman. Maybe next time he'll extend some grace to me. And, and um, you know, I, 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 a good friend of mine, Billy, Billy White, says, I'd rather be right than consistent. And I think that's, that's the piece of the puzzle here that I'm speaking to is that when you're really, really young and, and children like to conform, consistency is this, this mantra that, that we need to at least recognize. Like, hey, you're, you're not special. You're not unique. You're a part of a team. Do what a team should do. And then as they get older, you realize, okay, so now they are a part of a team but they have their own free will and they're adults. And now that's where the, the coach really has to step up and say, all right, how can, I, how can I appease them? How can I make them realize that they are an individual with a unique personality and u- unique desires, but still create a culture where the team wants them around and, and is willing to accept them for them. And boy, oh boy, that is the magic of the coach, isn't it? <laughs> It is, and and that's what I deal with um, every senior year at the college. We usually have at least one or two nurses, and they end up going on clinical during our season, so they'll miss every Thursday. And the way we just approach it is, look, they busted their butts for three years as freshmen, as sophomores, as juniors, going above and beyond. They've earned the ability to, you know, put the academics first, and it doesn't affect their playing status, And, and it it, it took a little bit, but that culture has finally caught on that they know that, Hey, they're not missing it because they're slacking off. You know, they're not hung yeah. over from a party They're You know, they, they busted their hump and that's what they're going to do. So. Well, imagine like a Saquon Barkley at Penn state, right? He gets 28 carries on a Saturday or whatever. And then he's banged up. So the rest right. of the week, he can't, he can't practice like everyone else. Like he literally is banged up. So if we're going to be consistent well, Barkley can't miss practice. Yeah, but we need Barkley come Saturday. And all 107,000 fans that show up want Barkley ready to go. So, you know, you, you create a culture that allows for people to realize that, hey, we each have a role and, and every role is important. And it just so happens that this guy's role is to carry the ball 28 times a game, you know, and, and not everyone can have that role. And I'm sorry, but that's something we're going to have to live with. Cool. All right. So to end with looking at the whole scale from, from young age to say college, um, maybe even beyond, what do you think is one of the biggest missing components of development? Like what's something that you think we as a coaching profession could probably all improve on when it comes to whole athlete development? Well, I think uh, for one, I think we need to, and this is just, you know, off the top of my head, I think we, we need to identify the value of rest. I, I think that we are, you know, such a, 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 a busy culture, a productive culture, a don't waste time culture, that sometimes we don't recognize the value of sleep, the value of rest, the value of, of, of uh, rejuvenate yourself to get those juices flowing. You know, in that love growth cycle, I really believe absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? So sometimes in our quest for 10,000 hours and getting better, we lose sight of the fact that, you know, if we let them rest, if we give them time, if, if we aren't so obsessed with grow, 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 you know, in, in our absence, they can really get motivated. And um, I guess one of the things I believe I, I say over coaching 101 is overvaluing information and undervaluing motivation. And that's really what I believe. I, I think uh, we as coaches need to do a better job of tying into a player's heart and soul sometimes and really get them excited for what we're doing and, 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 and constantly obsessing over this idea of we got to teach them. We got to teach them. We got to teach them. There's so much information to learn. And, and um, I mean, you know, that, that when, you, when you think about it from the end, you know, why do people walk away from their sport? Because they said it felt like a job. 
Yep. You know, so it's that constant balance between give them stuff, give them stuff because we know it's hard, but make them love it so they don't so they don't think it's a job. That's that delicate balance. Cool. Well, then the final thought is: so on a personal level, what's next for you? You know, it's... I don't, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, and and I'm 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 sensitive to that because. I love, I love this. I love, it's my life's passion. I, I love helping people get better. I love giving people what they want. Uh, but I'm also, I mean, I'm, I'm 47 years old. My son's going to college. My daughter's a sophomore and I don't know what, I don't know what baseball holds. I don't know what teaching holds. I just, I just know that uh, I, I enjoy helping people. I enjoy uh, sparking uh, a, a passion for people and wherever that takes me, it takes me. Awesome. So, um, yeah, green light hitting, uh, is it greenlighthitting.com? I, I don't even, I don't even know. Do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's out there and, uh, you know, if you search it, you'll run into some of the stuff I've done. Um, yeah, green light hitting and then how the river cats one was the book on, uh, relationships and competition. Yeah. And that's a great book. And I think, I read that. I think that was actually one of the first books I, I, I started to switch from my Barnes Noble Nook to a Kindle. And I think it was one of the first books I got on a Kindle. So uh, great read and, and some great nuggets on that. So, well, I appreciate the time sitting down and, and chatting with me on this holiday. And, and um, anytime you have anything, you know, ideas or thoughts, let me know. I'd love to have you back on and, you know, pound out some more topics and discussion, but it's been great. And I thank you for it. Well, you're welcome, and, and I don't have to have my leg pulled too awful hard to get on and do these. I enjoy it. Thank right, well, you, man. Thank yep, you. I'll let you know, and thanks again. And thanks, right. everyone, for tuning in to the Mental Cast. Again, I'm Dan Mickle, your host, with Kyle Wagner from Go Wags, Green Light Hitting, How the River Cat Won, and a slew of other things. So check it out on social media. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, and talk to you later. Thank you for listening to The Mental Cast, powered by Soul Performance Academy and hosted by Dan Mickle. You can always reach the show on all social media platforms at the username at RealDanMickle or via the show's website at danmickle.com. Don't forget to check out our title sponsor, Soul Performance Academy, at the username at 717soul and on their website, 717soul.com. We hope you can join us for our next episode. Thank you.